Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Sender Away. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 20th, 2017. Driving home from church last week, <clears throat> I encountered a woman at a stoplight who was asking for help. There she was, standing in the heat of the day in all the exhaust fumes with her cardboard sign at the busiest intersection in the county. I rolled down my window. Her appeal was an almost verbatim quote from the gospel in Matthew chapter 15 for this week. Sir, have mercy. Please help my child at home. And there I was, sitting in my air-conditioned Prius, living in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the world, straight out of church, and feeling a little bit like the disciples for this week, send her away. I knew I had about 10 seconds before the light turned green, and I knew that I had exactly $11 in my wallet, a 10 and a 1. I gave her the 10, and felt a tiny bit better about myself. By many different measures, this woman was living on the margins of American society, economics, housing, employment, food, and education. At about this same time, I had also read a book about American partisan politics called Deeply Divided, one sentence of which kept ringing in my ears. The authors wrote, the country is now more starkly divided in political terms than at any time since the end of Reconstruction, and more unequal in material terms than roughly a century ago, and greater even than on the eve of the Great Depression. Four of the six readings this week remind us that the Christian story is fundamentally about divine inclusion conquering human exclusions, about bringing people into the fullness of God's shalom, rather than shutting them out in a zero-sum game. In particular, the readings show how this is true in two areas that people just love to hate, sexuality and nationality. Ancient Israel excluded eunuchs from its community as so-called blemished people. We read in Deuteronomy 23, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. People with damaged testicles, Leviticus 21, were only one of many groups of people who were stigmatized as disfigured and defective, and so excluded by the community. Whether by birth or by castration, eunuchs could not reproduce. They were biologically inferior and therefore liturgically excluded. Eunuchs were deformed and incomplete human beings. Castrating your enemy was a way to humiliate him even after death. 1 Samuel 18. Eunuchs were at best safe and harmless people who could serve in the court of the king. 
Isaiah 56 for this week describes how God reverses this exclusion. We read, Let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that will not be cut off. Isaiah's play on words is shocking. Your genitals might be cut off from your body, but your name will not be cut off from God. Instead of being rejected from the temple, eunuchs will be remembered in the temple. Jesus in the Gospels goes beyond eunuchs who were born that way or made that way by men. He honors those who've made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, Matthew 19. The brilliant scholar Origen from the third century is perhaps the best example in the early church of taking Matthew 19 literally. And in Acts chapter 8, Luke portrays the Ethiopian eunuch as a paradigm of vibrant faith rather than of liturgical or national exclusion. So, that which was a source of humiliation and exclusion, a sexual deformity, has in God's economy become a sign of divine acceptance. Psalm 67 for this week does for nationality what Isaiah does for sexuality. It expands the boundaries of God's embrace to include people who were vilified as enemies and outsiders. I'm always amazed at how some of the ancient psalms move beyond the parochial to the global. The ancient poet comes from a geopolitically insignificant tribe, and yet he prays for God's blessings to fall on all nations. God is not a territorial God, he says. He's the Lord of all nations and all peoples. He welcomes all the ends of the earth to offer praise and thanks. Jesus reinforces this point in this week's Gospel in Matthew 15. It's a mother-daughter story, really. And in fact, a few pages later in Matthew 17, there's a father-son story. The Canaanite woman knew that as a Gentile, in the eyes of the Jews, she was a despised dog. She contrasts herself with the children of Israel. Nevertheless, she wouldn't accept the very curious silence of Jesus, the priority of his mission to Jews first, or the harsh exclusion of his disciples who wanted to send her away. And so she earned praise as a paradigm of great faith, just like many other women in the Gospels. The untouchable woman with an issue of blood for 12 years who touched Jesus in faith the widow of Nain, the woman bent over double for 18 years, the widow of Zarephath, the queen of the south, the widow who persisted in prayer, the poor but generous widow, the woman about to be stoned, the Samaritan woman at the well, and the woman who anointed Jesus for his burial. It's a short step from the categories of sexuality and nationality to economics, politics, gender, socioeconomic class. 
In Christ, writes Paul in Galatians and in Colossians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christians are thus radical egalitarians when it comes to the inclusive love of God. We're all equidistant from the heart of God. In the epistle this week from Romans chapter 11, Paul levels the playing field. He says that we're all in the same boat. God has bound all people over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. For books this week, I review a title called Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson. New York, HarperCollins, 2016. This book is 175 pages long. Jacqueline Woodson, winner of the Newbery Medal and National Book Award for her book Brown Girl Dreaming, not to mention numerous other awards for 30 other book titles, once said that she wanted to write about communities that were familiar to her and people that were familiar to her. She says, I wanted to write about communities of color. I wanted to write about girls. I wanted to write about friendship and of all the things that I felt were missing in a lot of the books that I read as a child. That's exactly what she does in her newest book, Another Brooklyn. Woodson grew up in Brooklyn with family roots in the South, the two places where this autobiographical work of fiction is set. When a 30-something narrator named August <coughs> meets a childhood girlfriend on the subway, it causes her to think back on her transition from childhood innocence to the much darker world of adults. She writes, Sylvia, Angela, Gigi, August, we were four girls together, amazingly beautiful and terrifyingly alone. She remembers skipping rope, playing in the water of a gushing fire hydrant, chasing the ice cream truck, trips to Coney Island. She also remembers the crackheads, the polyglot of languages on the city streets, the white flight from her neighborhood, the moans from the next door apartment, being molested by the pastor, her first boy, boyfriend groper, Jerome, her father's conversion to the nation of Islam, and especially the powerful absence of her mother. She says, how are we to learn our way on this journey without my mother? The Brooklyn of her past childhood is a different place than her present adult Brooklyn. And both past and present Brooklyn were always haunted by a so-called another Brooklyn of the title, of a far different sort. She writes, intrigued by all the places out there beyond Brooklyn, Mumbai, Kathmandu, Barcelona, any place but here. Everywhere we looked, we saw the people trying to dream themselves out, as though there was some place other than this place as though there was another Brooklyn. And in one reflection, there's even the terrifying threat of being sent back to Brooklyn. 
Thus, our geographic place across time forms us, but displacement, real or only imagined, perhaps does so even more. Adolescent angst suffuses every page of this novel. She writes, we were teenagers. What did we know about anything? In an interesting note <clears throat> at the end of the book about writing this book, Another Brooklyn, Woodson says that she rediscovered, among other things, the slow-motion ferocity of the end of childhood. Once again, the title, Another Brooklyn, 2016. The author is Jacqueline Woodson. For movies this week, I review a documentary called Minimalism, a documentary about the importance of things, 2016. This film explores the well-known and countercultural idea that less can be more. We meet all sorts of minimalists in this film. Families, entrepreneurs, architects, artists, journalists, scientists, and even one full-time traveler who only owns what he can carry. These people are trying to break the grip of our obsessive consumerism by living more simply. Think of the hordes of frenzied shoppers storming the doors of Walmart on Black Friday, or the rise of huge storage, the, the huge storage facility industry. Life is more about meaning and less about the accumulation of things. Purists who have already traveled this road and asked these questions might find the film a little bit shallow, a so-called brilliant glimpse of the obvious. You can't buy happiness, for example, or it's why lottery winners are miserable, and even a sort of self-promotion for the blog and book tour by the filmmakers. Others will see this as the psychobabble of well-to-do young hipsters, Still, those who have not asked how and why less can be more might find this a good starting place. For similar films, see my Journey with Jesus movie reviews about the Tiny House Movement, the movie No Impact Man, and in particular, the 2011 film Happy. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, the title, Minimalism a documentary about the importance of things. And in honor of the Syrophoenician woman from Matthew chapter 15, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Anna Kamanskaya. The title, Those Who Carry. Those who carry pianos to the 10th floor wardrobes and coffins an old man with a bundle of wood, wood limps beyond the horizon, a woman with a hump of nettles, a mad woman pushing a pram full of vodka bottles. They will all be lifted like a gull's feather, like a dry leaf, like an eggshell, a scrap of newspaper. Blessed are those who carry, for they shall be lifted." Anna Kamienska, Those Who Carry. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net.
for Sunday, August the 20th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.